Oh, look at that. It was muted. There we go. You know, smart countries throughout the world in history have just made it illegal to proselytize. Let everybody believe what they want to believe, but don't tell them they're wrong because those Christians, you know, they can be kind of annoying. Well, if, if you hear that and you're like, yeah, I agree. Maybe, maybe you're not a believer. Somebody invited you or you're watching online saying, what is this church thing all about? Well, here's the thing. We believe that 2,000 years ago, Jesus, the Son of God, died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. And that eternal life and real life here and now is only possible through faith in him. Therefore, we have to tell you. <laughs> we can't help but tell you. It is in our DNA when we love Jesus to tell everybody else that we love Jesus because he is the only way to salvation. He is the only God. God the Father sent his son to die for us. We have to then spread it. And this has been the DNA of the church from the very, very beginning. You know, it's always been part of us to go, okay, something's happening here. Now, now where next? And I got to tell you right now, God is working here, not just at Common Ground, but in Carson City, in other churches. God is at work. During COVID, studies have shown roughly 30% of people who were attending church have stopped and aren't going to come back. Yet, at the same time, new people are looking at what's happening in the world going, What's the truth? And they're being drawn to Jesus. God is moving. And I think God is moving in a unique and cool way to, to somewhat uh, refine his church. And I'm not just talking our church. I'm talking the church to draw more people in that we can really be the church. You know when the church grows historically? Under persecution. You know when the church uh, hits stagnant, kind of boring times? is when the times when things are really good and comfortable in general because then we just get, we get comfortable. Whereas when it starts becoming difficult to be a Christian, those who are on the fringes go, I'm done, I'm out. And the rest of us go, well, I need to go deeper in. Because if, if Jesus really did die on the cross and rise from the dead, and he is the truth, I have to choose him. And then we're drawn even deeper into greater faithfulness and joy in him. God is moving. And, and as a church, since the time we began, we've had this heart just like the church has always had the heart of going. You know, this idea of, of where next? What is God doing? And recently, uh, I had the opportunity to be involved in a, an assessment process. So when, when churches are planted uh, through the organization that we partner with, the North American Mission Board, when churches are planted, uh, the, the planting couple goes through this assessment process. And so I got to be involved with this assessment process for a church in Nevada uh, that they asked us to maybe partner with and, and, and look at. And so um, I got to go through this process where we looked at you know, the, the couple themselves. We looked at their ability to, to speak, to, to teach, how to study, the all these things. And what we landed on, the elder board landed on, this isn't a place where God is sending us. But the assessment of this individual also landed on you know what, this probably isn't the thing for you right now, especially not here. And I, I just share that to say that kind of assessment is really a big deal because it is it's somewhat new, unfortunately. It used to be whoever wanted to plant a church, it's like, well, just go. A warm body that's willing to go and be poor, go. Um, but the success rate was not real good with that. So they, they instituted this assessment process, which makes it pretty difficult actually to get to the point where somebody can plant a church. But since then, it, the success rate has gone through the roof in comparison to before. 
because there's some things that need to be in place for the person going and for the church sending. And that's something that's changed in the last decade or so too. A lot of times church planters would just go on their own. Now it's, it's more, especially with the North American Mission Board, churches plant churches. And so there's two areas. There's the person going and then there's the church behind. Now, here's the other thing, though, for, for us. We do want to be involved in church planting and see the kingdom go. But here's where the kingdom is really going to expand when each one of us accepts that we're also sent. Two weeks ago, we looked at this uh, as we were finishing our core series, but that we are all ministers of reconciliation. We've been reconciled to God, and we've been made ministers of reconciliation, meaning we have a joy, a joyous responsibility to help others, to plead with others, be reconciled to God. We're called to be Jesus freaks, and that's okay. And so I think the movement is really going to come when all of us kind of accept that a little bit. Not only that we're saved, we're reconciled, but now we have the job to go. Is that scary to anybody? <laughs> it is, and that's okay. So we're going to look in Acts. Turn to Acts 13. As we're walking through Acts, this is exciting because now we're seeing somewhat of a shift. Acts has followed Peter. It's followed the church in Jerusalem primarily and, and a couple apostles. And now we're taking a shift in Acts where we're going to focus on the apostle Paul. Now, he's still called Saul. In fact, in today's passage, we're going to see his name change. He's been called Saul. Now he's going to be called Paul. Saul is his Jewish name. Paul is more of his Greek name. And he is a, uh, an apostle to the Gentiles, to Greeks. And so he's going to go by Paul so he can relate to those he's meeting with. But this is the first time we see an organized missions trip sent out. This is probably 20-ish years after Jesus rose from the dead. And this is the first time there's kind of an organized, hey, there's some people there, there, and there, and there who haven't heard the gospel. We got to go. And we're going to see the church that sends them, and we're going to see those that they send. And I think we're going to learn a lot about what God wants us to be. Let's pray. Father, uh, I thank you, as I do every week, really, uh, for your word. God, I thank you that we can trust the Bible. I thank you that you've given us all these reasons around why we can trust it. It's never been proven wrong, God, and it really is alive and active. And I ask, Holy Spirit, stir in us today. Teach us what you want to teach us out of your word. Let us look at this early church and see what you have for us here and now. And, and I thank you that we are getting to see you work in ways that even they got to see you work then, and we ask you to continue. God, do your thing, and we want to be part of it. In Jesus' name, amen. So Acts 13, uh, set the stage. We've skipped over a little bit. Uh, last week, uh, Preston taught on uh, the early church and prayer and how Peter was delivered from jail just by the prayer of God's people. Now, some time has gone on. If you remember, Stephen was stoned. Stephen was the first martyr, a normal guy, part of the church in Jerusalem, he steps out in faith. He, he gets a, a servant role. He's a deacon, one of the first deacons. Um, and then he teaches God's word, and they stone him for it. They kill him, the first martyr. After that, the church kind of flees Jerusalem. Everybody goes except for the apostles. And, by the way, Saul, who we're seeing here now, whose name is going to be Paul, he's one of those doing the persecuting. When Stephen was killed, he was watching the coats. So all of this happens. People go all over, and they take the gospel with them. Now we're going to be in Antioch. Antioch is, is not, it's north of Jerusalem. It's not a Jewish area. It's a Gentile area. And they are going to be sending out a church plant. Uh, and we see back in Acts 11, some of the things that we've skipped, what happened here. Some, some of those who fled from Jerusalem went to Antioch. Uh, 
the apostles in Jerusalem heard about this new church in Antioch, so they sent them one of their great people, Barnabas. We've seen him before. Barnabas, uh, the word names means encourager. And so Barnabas goes to Antioch to help you know, grow this church. He was there just a little while, and then he goes to a place called Tarsus and grabs Saul. Saul, who was the one persecuting Jesus converted him, met him on the road. Uh, he did some other things. God grew him. Uh, this missionary journey we're going to see here is roughly 10 years after uh, Saul's conversion. So you see it here. There's Jerusalem right down there. Antioch is right there. Okay, so Barnabas goes there. He goes and gets Saul. They go to Antioch. They spend a year then growing that church, making that church healthy, building it. Again, this is now probably 10 years or so after Saul's conversion, 20 years-ish, maybe 18, maybe 16, we don't know exactly, after Jesus died and rose from the dead. And so let's look at this church in Antioch, which will really become the center of the Christian movement uh, in the world at that time. Acts 13, verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Time out. So we're going to take it kind of slow because we're going to see some really cool things in this church. Things that a lot of times if you just were to read like I normally would read, you'd skip right over. But again, this is a healthy church, a sending church, and so we're going to see Four characteristics of a sending church. And here's the first one. These are the leaders of the church. Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Manan, uh, Saul. This is really a strange, diverse group. Uh, you have, uh, going through the list here, the first one is Barnabas, a Greek-speaking Jew. So Barnabas is unique. He is actually from the island that we're going to see them go to today. So he's from this area. Uh, and then he spent time in Jerusalem. Barnabas is unique. He's probably the leader. A lot of times we think of Paul as the leader. At first it wasn't Paul. It was Barnabas. Barnabas, it doesn't look like he has a gift of teaching, really. Uh, he has more of a gift of serving. He really grabs people and pulls them up and helps them succeed. That's why he's the encourager. Whereas Saul does have a gift of teaching, clearly. But you see there, so Barnabas, uh, the, other, the next one is Simeon. Simeon, who is called Niger. Simeon is a black man, probably from Africa, definitely from Africa. So this is somewhat unique. This is a diverse group. As you start to look at where they're from, the next one is also from Africa, uh, Lucius from Cyrene. And then Manan. This one's interesting. Different translations translate the words differently, but Manan was raised with Herod Antipas. So he, they were like foster brothers growing up. They were kind of, I mean, close friends growing up. Who is Herod Antipas? This is the Herod who is in, in control in Jerusalem in that area. He is the one who kills James with the sword. So this guy is against the church. This guy is, is you know, a, a Roman pseudo-king over the Jewish lands. And this is one of his good friends, strange. And then, of course, you have Saul, who had persecuted the church. Here's what I want us to draw out of this. These leaders are a diverse group, and they're very different from one another. They're not there because of uh, whatever they've achieved in life. They're there because they are, are mature shepherds. 
And I want to notice that because I think it is important. Because the way, well, this is in your notes, the leadership in a sending church is made up of spiritually mature shepherds. Not people that fit a certain mold. And in contrast, the American church has a tendency to put those as elders and leaders who are successful in the world. Business leaders, wealthy, whatever that is. And often, or, or they're put there, I mean, you guys, if you've been in church long, you've seen some of this. Whoever's been in the church the longest, whether they're spiritually mature or not, whether they're shepherds, you know, not everybody is called to be a leader. It is, and there is a gifting there. And so here, this group, they're okay getting out of the mold a little bit and drawing in those who God brings. I think this is important, that we choose spiritually mature shepherds as leaders of the church. But then there's something else. How are these leaders described? Well, they're described by some of their giftings. Uh, there was in the church in Antioch, prophets and teachers. And then it goes through some of those leaders. Prophets and teachers. Those are, are two different roles within the leadership. The prophet. Now, a lot of times we think prophet as someone who foresees the future. That's very rare in Scripture, uh, that prophecy predicts the future. Sometimes but here, and in the early church, primarily a prophet was somebody who could hear from God in a, in a cur current cultural context. And in the early church, they didn't have the written scriptures like we have. They had the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament. So the role of a prophet was really important during this time as they would get together and go, God, where do you want us to go? What do you want us to do? A prophet, somebody kind of really in tune, somebody who could abide well, walk in the Spirit, knew the, the Word of God, knew the cultural context, and one of those that when you get in a meeting, they just kind of speak up, you know, this is happening in the world, God says this, maybe God is leading this way, and again, this time often it was God speaking to that person, prompting their heart, go this way, and so prophets were very, very important, in tune with God, but then teachers, teachers, these are people understanding the word of God, we need teachers, this is why here at Common Ground, this is a big part of every Sunday service, we teach the word. Because the word is the authority. God's word is the authority. No pastor, no leader. Jesus is the authority. The Bible is the authority. And so our role, my role, is to basically find out what this says and make it easy for all of us to understand and obey. And so teaching is very, very important. A sending church will be committed to the clear teaching of Scripture and following God's leading. I included that and following God's leading because you see, you're, we're going to see this happening, but I think that's the prophet role. That's the people, a lot of times we as a church, we can get together, we can study the Bible, we can look around like, we like each other, this is great. But you need some of these prophet type people that go, what's next? Where is God at work? What does God want us to do? And they're kind of annoying people because um, they're all, but you need them. You got to love them because they're always poking a little bit. What about this? What about that? Are we comfortable? Where should we go? What should we be doing? God is leading somewhere. We're like, well, just leave us alone. We're comfortable right now. No, no, God is continuing to move. And we see in the early church, you know, the church blew up the world as it was known at that time. God still wants to do that today in cultures and societies in our community. And so we need to be committed to the clear teaching of the word and then obeying. Now look at verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Who is the they? Verse 2. It's probably the whole church. 
It's probably not just these leaders. It looks like that's the whole church. The whole church is a worshiping and praying church. So this is in your notes. Ascending church will be marked by worship and submissive prayer. Worship. Anybody in here get uncomfortable with worship? the worship time? Like you'd rather maybe come late just for the sermon part because that's more comfortable? Here's the thing about worship. You read in Psalms, worship, the way God wants his people to worship is loud with drums, by the way, that's in the Old Testament. You know, bang a cymbal, <laughs> shout to the Lord. You see David, King David, worshiping in his underwear at one point. I'm not saying we should do that. Don't do that. <laughs> Keep your clothes on. But, but worship is an exciting thing where, where we're shouting out to the Lord. We're grateful. We're thankful. If you're a thankful person, you want to express that. We are grateful to God. We've been saved by Jesus. Done. There's nothing we can do to earn it. That just leads us to worship. They were worshiping. You know, I grew up in a church that uh, your spirituality in general during the music time was gauged by how still you could be. Maybe you're, and it wasn't wrong. It was just that's the way it was. So when I went to college and we had this thing called Singspiration, I went to Biola University, and we'd go to this chapel and everybody's, you know, there's like fast music and, and people are doing this. And at first I was really awkward. And then I got into it. Like, this is heartfelt worship. So when we worship after that, let me encourage you, if you don't sing, sing. If you're not, try it. And you don't have to be any good, by the way. The Bible never says sing if you're good at it. But just try that expression of a grateful heart. That's what this church is doing. We're called to worship. A healthy church will be a church about worshiping God. That's why we gather. We don't gather to accomplish a lot of other things apart from worshiping God. So they're worshiping and they're praying. And you see this, they're praying with fasting. Fasting is uh, refraining from food, often for a 24-hour period. Uh, they would do it uh, from, a, you know, they would have lunch, but they wouldn't have dinner, and then they'd avoid breakfast and lunch the next day, and they'd have a big dinner the, the next day. Uh, but fasting for the purpose of prayer. Fasting isn't, it's not just to not eat, it's to trade eating for prayer. And if you've ever done this, it's helpful, because when you're tummy starts to grumble, it leads you to go, oh yeah, I'm supposed to pray. Then it grumbles again, I'm supposed to pray. And there's other benefits as well. But the purpose here is that they are fasting and praying, submissive prayer. So they're worship, they're praying, and they're listening. How often in our prayers is it just our laundry list? You know, we talked about this in our group this week. If you missed it, uh, too bad, but go back and listen to the sermon, Preston taught, and it was awesome. But often in our prayers, we're just asking for stuff rather than listening. You know, the Bible says, be still and know that I am God. In, in prayer, the Lord's Prayer, again, that was in our group this last week. We look at the Lord's Prayer, and it begins with, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It starts with praise and worship. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It begins with submitting to him. And often, if you pray that way, by the time you get to your request, they're different. Because here, he's asking to pray and listen in prayer. They're listening in prayer, and the Holy Spirit's able to direct them because of that. So look at verse 3. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them, and they sent them off. So in verse 2... They're worshiping, they're praying, they hear from the Holy Spirit, send Barnabas and Saul on a mission that I have for them. They say, okay. They lay their hands on them, they pray, they send them out. 
Ascending church will be marked by swift obedience and a willingness to sacrifice. How often do we feel God leading in a certain way, biblical, by the way, God will never lead apart from what is scriptural, but how often do we feel God leading and it's like, eh, I'm going to test him a little. I'm not sure that's exactly what he wants me to do. You know, I'm going to test this or that. They, when they knew how God led, they obeyed. You know, there was a period when Callie and I were pursuing, you know, is God leading us to plant the church? And I felt called, and she hadn't felt the call quite as strongly yet. And uh, we were walking out of a seminar, and, and she looked at me, and she said, if we don't plant a church, we're going to be disobedient. I went, okay. <laughs> we, we felt that. We believed God was leading. We knew what he wanted to do. And immediately, we took steps of obedience. Of course, nobody's perfect. But that's what we want to do, is when we feel him leading, we want to obey. But here's what I want to notice about this, too. Who do they send? Barnabas and Saul. Who were Barnabas and Saul? They were kind of the key leaders. When the church was starting to form Antioch, who did the Jerusalem church send? They sent Barnabas, because Barnabas was a rock star. They sent Barnabas up there. And then what does Barnabas do? Wow, this, this church is growing and whatever. I need a gifted team. Barnabas goes and finds Saul and says, hey, God is working in Antioch. I need your help. And he, so for this year, they had really been building and growing. They're the ones called to send. That's tough. A church that's going to be a sending church is at some point really going to have to send those who are going to leave big holes behind them. That's what we see here. They're willing to sacrifice. A sending church will be marked by swift obedience and a willingness to sacrifice. To say, yes, we will send these people, although we will miss them greatly, God. You want to use them somewhere else. You know, because we at, at Common Ground, from day one, really have had a, a heart to see God move and to plant and to send, we've known that there's going to be a time where there's some healthy and sad goodbyes to some of us. There are churches around the nation doing exactly what we want to do. In, in planting churches. And here's what the, the leaders of those churches say. Every time when God is leading a plant or something and you say, who feels led to go? It's like the, the hands raised. It's like, nope, not you. You, you need to stay. Nope, not you. It's, it's the, the really faithful ones, the ones who will leave holes behind. But these same churches have said the same thing. But when we say yes, hands open and let them go, God raises up others you would never expect to fill those roles and God empowers them to do an amazing job. You know, years ago, I was, uh, I spoke at a church that wanted to get, you know, more missional toward church planting, and I was meeting with their elders and leaders and their families, and, and one of the, this is one of the things I said, if you really want God to, to work through you, this was a big church that had never really sent, they had been in, but God wanted them to focus out, and since then they have, which has been awesome, but one of the things I said was, if you want God to do this in your church, it means you're going to have to send out some of your best. And afterward, we ate together, and there was a lady who really came up, and she just did not like that. She said, you know, I, I just, I can't agree with that. We have enlisted kind of some of their people, like the Paul, you know, our Paul, that Paul, leading worship. Like, what, what if God called Paul? You know, and as we talked about that, she said, no, God gave us these people. We need them for us. We should be blessed by them. I said, well, what about the other people that haven't heard that need? No, us first. And that was really her heart, us first. I said, well, there's, there's got to be a shift. You know, and for us, one of our values we talked about a couple weeks ago, kingdom over castle. Not us first. 
the kingdom first, which means we might have to say goodbye to people we don't want to say goodbye to. You know, we have actually, I think, a, a decent example. So our sending church was Common Ground Las Vegas. Common Ground Las Vegas started in Arizona. So Common Ground, Arizona, Saharita is the area. When they planted the church in Vegas, they sent out Ben and Austin. You might have heard of them. You might have met them. They sit, ben was their primary teaching pastor. Austin was their primary worship pastor. For us, it would be like me and Paul going. They sent out them to, to plant this church, but then also to be used in, in other ways. Uh, Austin leads Worship Catalyst, which is a, uh, an organization we partner with that helps churches grow in their their worship. So when we began here, before we had Paul, Callie was leading worship, and she was mentored by Austin through this organization, which was pretty awesome. Ben is now over the assessment that I referred to. He is over assessment for all the West Coast church planting. So they said yes and sent them, and God is using them to do even more great things while continuing to do great things in Arizona. So we have an example of this, and I'm not saying Paul and I are leaving. Don't hear that. That's not, we don't feel that call at the moment. But when we go, maybe Paul, um, but, but when we go, we're going to have some hard goodbyes, and that's okay. Now, I want to switch real quick and now look at Paul and Barnabas, Saul and Barnabas, because now we're going to see uh, some of the characteristics of those who are sent. Look at verse 3 again, and now we're not going to look at the church. We're going to look at those sent. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Again, this might be something we skip over. They laid their hands on them. This wasn't magical, uh, but this was them laying their hands on and praying and, and sending, meaning they were sending them with their permission, with their support, meaning these were leaders who had the support of a local church. A missionary, so we're going to call these people missionaries, a missionary uh, will always go with the approval and support of a local church. Will always go with the approval and support of a local church. Now, I want to bring this home a little bit. You know, missionary, we think of missionaries that go to Africa. We support Joanna, you know, or Costa Rica. We think of those missionaries. There's also more local missionaries, you know, and we need to do more local missions, people groups, uh, areas that, that don't have the gospel. This may be prison. This may be elderly homes, you know, whatever. We can go through the list. But we might be called to stay part of this body, but also go as missionaries to a, a certain people group. Maybe it's kids. Maybe it's schools. I don't know what God might lead you to do, but the, these missionaries may stay local. So this might be you. Don't hear this and go, that's not me. This might be you. And it might be here local. Or it might be you and God is saying, I want you to go to South America. I don't know. Maybe. As God leads us, I think we're going to have both things happening. But whenever you go, you go with the support of a local church. Too many times missionaries um, and, and church plants will, will go just because they can't get along with anybody else. And so they just want to go do their own thing rather than having some uh, success serving where they're at. And the church says, no, we are behind what you're doing. And that leads to the other one. Who are they sending out? They're sending out people with a proven track record of leadership. So this is in your notes too. A missionary will have a proven track record in their home church. You know, a lot of times people get leadership positions because they got the right degree, but have never actually done anything. 
You know, I went to, to Bible college and then to, to seminary, and, and I've spoken to others that went to seminary, and in seminary, people are being converted. I'm like, wait a minute, you're going to school to be a pastor, and you just got converted while in seminary? Because it, it's like a, a tract for life, you know what I mean? A, a career tract rather than a calling. And so a lot of times, again, you get this happening of, you know what, I'm not going to actually serve in a church. I'm just going to go, I just want to go lead somewhere. Here, they have a proven track record. So we start here. We start at home. And now let's look at verse 4 and 5. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. Here's another little piece that we see. You know, again, Barnabas is probably really the leader here. Barnabas, where do they go? They go to this island. You know who's from that island? Barnabas. His first stop was his home, the place he had come from. I think that's neat. And I think there's something about that. We're, we're called to be missionaries, but it begins at, at home. It begins among our own people. It begins in Carson City, in Dayton, in Gardnerville, wherever God has us. This is where we start. And so he starts at home, but there's something else in these verses. Who do they have with them, verse 5? They had John to assist them. John. Who's John? John Mark. They picked him up when they went to Jerusalem. So they went to Jerusalem recently because they were in Antioch. Uh, Jerusalem was having trouble. There's someone of a famine. They raised some money. They sent Barnabas and Saul to the Jerusalem church to give them the money to help them. I mean, a Jewish church and a Gentile church, just how they work together. They go, and while there, John Mark is part of that church, and he's like, hey, I'll come with you guys. Sounds good. You know. So they bring him back, and now they go on this first missionary journey and they take John Mark. Now, John Mark is going to leave them, and that's going to become an area of confrontation between Saul and Barnabas later. But they bring him along, and later when they split, they're going to go two different directions. Barnabas is going to take John Mark with them, and then Paul is going to take somebody else. But here's the thing we see. They always have somebody else with them. They're always building into somebody younger. Somebody younger in the faith doesn't always have to be younger age-wise, but they're building into others to push that mission forward. You see in the New Testament, we see the books of First and Second Timothy. That's Paul writing to a young pastor who had traveled with him. Titus, another young leader that went with Paul and he raised up and then sent him out. A missionary, or let me say it this way, a person living on mission will find others to train in order to carry on the mission. That's really a big deal. We're all called to make disciples. And so as we go, who is there that we can just take with us? That we can train up. Now, John Mark, kind of a cool character, he wrote the book of Mark. So he starts out here young. He's, there's some trouble in it. And in the book of Mark, uh, if you remember the gospel, there's a point where they're in uh, the garden, they're praying, whatever, and this guy comes walking along, and it looks like he just has a, a blanket on. It looks like he had been in bed, and he heard some stuff happening, and he just threw a blanket on, and he goes out there. And then somebody goes, and he grabs it, and he throws the blanket off, and he runs off naked. It's a totally weird scene in, in the book of Mark. They think that's probably Mark. 
It's probably this guy, John Mark. And when he wrote the book of Mark, he's like, by the way, I was there. I'm going to, you know, and this little thing about himself. That's this guy. So he, had, he was there when Jesus was around. He was on the fringes kind of there. And then they raise him up. He stumbles along the way and he ends up writing one of our gospels. Pretty cool. My question then, who do we have? Who do you have in your life that you're bringing along? You may say, I'm not mature enough. Well, guess what? That's not the point. There's always somebody behind you or to the side of you. You need to go together. Who are we taking with us and building into? Now, we're going to look at one scene, quickly, one scene on this island. We don't get a whole lot of details. They go to this island. They travel through. Obviously, there's converts and things happening. But then the writer, Luke is the writer of Acts, he's going to focus on one situation which I think will teach us quite a bit. Look at verse 6. When they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that's the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, right there we see the name switch, then he never goes back to Saul. Uh, Saul, who's also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now, I think I skipped over uh, a note earlier that we see when they're sent out, but, and we see this again right here. They were sent out by the Holy Spirit. So they weren't just sent out because they were good folks, but a missionary is sent and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And you see that here. So again, as we go, we don't go in our own strength. This is really good news. It's not up to you being smart. It's not up to you being gifted. It's not up to you being creative. It's up to you being obedient and letting the Holy Spirit work in and through you. So they go empowered by the Holy Spirit. And you see that here. Paul here is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Well, who is this that they meet? And why do they focus on this interaction and not the others? Well, this magician guy, I think, is really relevant even to us today. Look at him. There's several things about him. He is a magician, so he's probably into astrology. Uh, he's into, you know, possibly tricks, and they might be empowered by demons. So he might be actually doing some things, maybe, empowered by demons, or he might just be a a trickster like a magician today. It could go either way back then. He's a Jewish false prophet. Listen, Jews weren't into magic like this. So he was a Jew, but the Jews would have rejected him because of what he was doing there. And he was a false prophet. So he's claiming these things from God and then passing them on. He's a unique character. He is uh, practicing what we could call syncretism, meaning including all kinds of different things together. Judaism, magic, you know, this false prophecy coming out. He's bringing all this together, which is no big deal. He's with the proconsul, who is kind of like the governor of the island. 
So Rome had appointed him, an intelligent guy, obviously, a good leader. You're going to lead this island. And this guy is kind of one of his counselors. And everything's fine until Paul and Barnabas show up and start talking about Jesus. He's okay with magic. He's okay with Judaism. He is not okay with Jesus. Does that sound familiar? We live in a day and age very much like this. You can accept everything, but do not claim the name of Jesus. If Jesus is part of it and he's exclusive, well, now you're out. You know, it's relativism. You can believe whatever you want, just don't push that on us. But here's the thing. That's the only one that's true. And we saw this uh, just recently at the, uh, the inauguration of the president. When we, there was a, they always do this, they had a church service. Well, guess who was part of that church service? Muslims, Buddhists, Sikh, um, uh, Native American religions, Mormons. We, we can go down the list. Pretty much all were there, worshiping together as if they all believed the same thing. Two groups were missing. Uh, conservative Catholics and evangelical Protestants. Our group wasn't there because we cannot go into a setting like that that is saying all these things are equal and the same, believe whatever you want. We can't because Jesus is exclusively true. And the problem here, again, with this magician, this guy, for him, you can believe whatever you want, but wait a minute, you're saying Jesus is the only way and he steps in and he's trying to prevent this from happening. And what does Paul do? He, he turns, and don't say this to somebody. I mean, unless, like, God, I don't know, God would really have to stir in you to turn, you know, you son of the devil. I wouldn't recommend that. That's not a good evangelism strategy. <laughs> but he's bold. He doesn't shrink back from the false teaching happening. This pro-council, this guy, an intelligent guy, he invited them. He said, I, I hear there's things happening on this island I want to hear, and invites them. And this guy steps in trying to just stop it. Here's somebody who wants the gospel, who's open to it. Here's somebody trying to fight against it. What does Paul do? I'm going to love this. I'm going to share this. You shut up. <laughs> I mean, basically, that's what he said. Even worse than that. And again, don't say that either. Um, but boldly counter the false beliefs of our day. Be bold, be willing to counter those. When people say, oh, there's all this, and we want to be patient, we want to be tolerant, and we should. We should always speak in love. Scripture is very clear about that. But some of these who are going to try and stop some of these who are open to it, we don't let that happen. Be willing to be bold and counter those. Be willing to be the bad guy. In our world right now, if you boldly speak out with Jesus, these things are wrong and he's right, people will come against you. It's going to happen. We have to be okay with that. If we're going to see God move, we need to be bold. A Holy Spirit-empowered Jesus follower will be bold to articulate the gospel and counter false beliefs. So Paul here, we see after this, the proconsul believes. And I, I like this in verse 12. The proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. He was astonished at the teaching. Sometimes we read these stories in Acts and go, oh, they had these miracles. You know, he blinded him. Why don't we have that stuff? Well, we have the word right now in a way they didn't have before. But why was this guy converted? Yeah, he saw the things that happened, but Jesus did a lot of miracles and most people didn't believe. It's the teaching. It's the word. He heard the truth and he understood that. So for us, that's the same way. Are we going boldly ready to share the truth of God's word? And so I want to 
finish kind of with this question. To whom or where is God sending you? We're all sent. Some of us will be uniquely sent. It might be a foreign country. It might be another state. It might be something here. Where is God sending you or to whom? Is there somebody that name is popping in your heart? There's somebody I need to boldly, lovingly go to. Who would that be? And then we're going to transition now to worship. And for the rest of us, again, this sending church, what did they do? They worshiped. So let's worship. And if you're new to this whole worship thing, try it. If you're here and you're not a believer, but the Holy Spirit is stirring you, by the way, that's what he does. If you're uncomfortable, it might be because the Holy Spirit is saying, I love you and I want you. I'm going to be available in the back. Come talk to me and we can talk about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord. And while we worship, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is something we are commanded to do. We do it every other week here. And we do it in a way that will make you uncomfortable because worship, we think, is, is supposed to be active. It's, this isn't the right way to do it. It's the way we have chosen to do it. But as we begin singing, as you feel led, if you have surrendered to Jesus as Lord and you feel like you and him are on a good spot, get up, come up to one of our stations here, uh, grab the cup. Uh, in it, in the top, is the bread. The bread, Jesus said in the Last Supper, he said, you know, do this in remembrance of me. He said, the bread is symbolic of my body, which is broken. He said, the blood is symbolic of the blood, which I have spilt for you for this new covenant. So when we do this, he says, do this as often as you do it. He doesn't tell us how often, but do this in remembrance of me till I come back. So there's a lot involved in taking the Lord's Supper. Paul tells us to examine our hearts. Before you take it, spend a minute in prayer. God, how are we? Are we good? And he might reveal some sin in your life you need to deal with. He might reveal a relationship with somebody you need to reconcile, maybe even before you take it, or commit to do it before you take it. And then we take it remembering what he did. This is part of worship because this is part of us just saying, thank you. We love you. We praise you. And we do it until he comes back. So there's also the piece of we're looking forward. Jesus is coming back. And when he does... The time of evangelism is done. The, the time of basically a lot of these things the church is doing is done except for worship. We're going to be doing other things. We won't just be like playing harps on clouds, but we will be worshiping forever, and it's going to be amazing. Let me pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for worship. God, when we worship, we're doing what we've been made to do, and it feels right. God, as we see your word, God, the truth just echoes out. The truth of this up against every other belief in the world. God, Jesus, you are the only way to salvation. Jesus, your death and resurrection has earned us life. And we say, thank you, thank you, thank you. And we're now going to worship. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. We remember, Jesus, what you did. We will never forget. And we do ask you to come back soon. God, our world is tough. Come back soon and set it all right. But until then, we beg you, work in and among us. God, we know that you work through your people, not around them. We want to see more people come to know you. We want to see marriages healed. We want to see kids thriving in you. God, use us for that. We say yes to whatever that would be before we know what it is. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.